So welcome everyone to this week's edition of the Commercial Real Estate One-on-One Meetup Group. Uh, for those of you guys who are tuning in for the first time, welcome. Uh, this we're, we're, Our goal really as, as a platform is to try to become the number one resource for commercial real estate online. Uh, you know, we do this every other week uh, where we host speakers from across the country to talk about a variety of different topics. And we just so be, happen to be very lucky to have, uh, you know, one of the top land brokers in the city in our office, uh, Nick Rasanti. And, you know, I'm still learning a lot about land myself. And, you know, he's the first person I usually call if I have any questions. So, Nick, welcome. Thanks for having me. Congrats on, on growing this thing. When you started doing this a couple of years ago, uh, I didn't know what it, what was, what it was going to turn into, but you seem like you've got an audience. So that's great. Yeah. And, and, and so Nick was actually, I believe the first episode of this, um, this podcast or this uh, meetup slash podcast. And uh, we talked about commercial real estate brokerage and his episode is by, is the, is the most listened to, I think it has like seven or 8,000 downloads at this point, which is crazy. But, uh, but yeah, no, you, you did provide a lot of great insights during that, that, that episode. So I thought, why not? Let's try to uh, get you back on and talk about, you know, something that I think is very prevalent, you know, obviously in commercial real estate and that's land. So first off, you know, can you give the audience a little bit of an introduction of who you are? Sure. Uh, Nick Grisanti, uh, Grisanti Group Commercial Real Estate. My dad, Paul Grisanti, founded this company in 2007, I believe. I've been in the commercial real estate business since 2016, uh, but really started in this, in this kind of field in 2013 doing economic development for the state of Kentucky. So um, that, that's, that was a, a a job that transitioned into commercial real estate uh, quite nicely. So really, I feel like I've been <clears throat> doing this similar type stuff uh, just in in two different roles for for about a decade now. Um, it's funny to think, I guess uh, my anniversary of starting with the state uh, was exactly a decade ago. I think it was March of 2013. And then I jumped uh, over to the private sector in March of 2016. Um, and then I've been doing that ever since, you know, I don't only do land, but it, that's just been something that our brokerage has, has always specialized in to some extent. It seemed like my dad was always working on big, you know, large tracks and, and making connections with uh, large landowners and, uh, just naturally, had, you know, made connections in that world. And, and so, you know, we, we do all types of stuff. We do industrial leasing, retail leasing, um, building sales, investment sales, but I do uh, enjoy the land, uh, land sales. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and yeah, just to clarify the main reason why, you know, we focus on a particular topic during the, 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 the discussion, but you're right. Nick's done tons of different, you know, uh, industrial product and, and retail and all these different types of property types as well. Um, and then on the economic development side, which is something that I found extremely interesting. I mean, you would work with people who are looking to relocate to Kentucky or maybe establish a business in Kentucky and you'd take them to different sites and try to work with the state in order to create these incentive packages to kind of incentivize them to locate. So, you know, I think from a site selection standpoint, you know, this is something that you've been doing for quite some time. So. Yeah, no doubt. There's there's a lot of what I do today that was very similar to what I did when I was working the state. You know, you're running companies around to different industrial parks, and um, you know, I work more more now with sellers. Uh, it's funny when you're when you're working for the state, you're you're kind of wearing a dual hat as both a a seller rep, meaning that you're trying to help the state. You know, put their best foot forward, but it really it's the communities that are that are the ones that have to get their sites, you know, in position to be shown. And so, but you're as you're running around the companies, you're almost kind of like you become their their buyer rep, you know, while they're in Kentucky, you know, while they may be going to four or five different states to look at sites when they when they cross state lines and say, hey, economic development cabinet, show us you know, show us your five best sites, you you kind of end up feeling like you're working a little bit for the company, uh, even though you are working for the state. But that's the fun of that job is you really you're just trying to create a win-win scenario of, you know, uh, the state and one particular community and the company all finding uh, the perfect, the perfect fit. Definitely. No, for sure. So one thing I'm kind of curious about, you you did, you mentioned that you work primarily with sellers of these large tracts of land. You know, obviously you've built a lot of relationships with developers, not just locally, but also, 
you know, across the country that are looking to build stuff in Kentucky. Uh, one thing I'm kind of curious about is, you know, first starting off on the business owner side. So, you know, I'm sure this has happened to you in the past where you may have a business owner that, you know, as you know, they've operated in the space for quite some time and maybe they're now looking to expand and they say, well, let's, let's see if we can maybe just build our own building or, you know, do something like that. What are some of the things that they should consider prior to taking on that, 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 that route, I guess, or taking that route? Yeah, it's going to take longer than they expect. That's the first thing I usually tell people. Uh, they Land development is never quick, especially if you're starting from a site that's not zoned. Um, <clears throat> if it's zoned and if it's ready to go, you know, there's there's obviously you can take a site on at a lot of different stages in, in its process. If it's just a farm that's zoned ag um, versus a site that's in an industrial park, um, you're, those are two different scenarios. So you have to analyze, you know, what is their timing? And say and and you know how realistic is a 18 month entitlement process with another year or longer to construct if they need to be in a building uh, so you know super quickly um, you might you might try to steer them away from a, a of a, a purchase you know a, a, a construction project if if the timeline doesn't doesn't align with um, the actual you know, if their business timeline doesn't align with with a land purchase, you have to help educate them on what, uh, you know, how long it could actually take to build a building. Um, if they if they are getting it, you know, if they know that there's going to be a process, um, I think the important thing, and I probably talked about this a lot on, you know, I'm kind of recalling what we talked about a little bit in our first conversation a couple of years ago about this, but a team is so critical. You have to have a good a good land use attorney. You have to have a good um well, some some attorneys do both land use and contracts, and sometimes people split that up and say this this attorney is going to do just my land use stuff, and this attorney is going to do just my contract work. Um, and some attorneys specialize in one or the other and don't really cross over into the other. So you might end up, end up working with two attorneys on a deal, um, and then a good civil engineer and you know a good contractor uh, to help in the early stages. You're going to be bouncing bouncing ideas off contractors and making sure you're have pretty good budget numbers and stuff for, for this building. And then the engineer is really going to be the, the civil engineer is going to be the key for figuring out, you know, if a site is actually buildable, you know, floodplain, wetlands, all the different stuff that all the different hair that could be on a, on a property. Um, usually it's a good civil engineer that helps tackle a lot of those items. So yeah, building the team is, is critical. No, for sure. No, I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, as you had mentioned, you know, a, a good person, you know, usually as, as an agent, you know, if you're at an office, for example, and your broker probably has connections to some of these individuals. So leveraging those relationships. And if you don't personally have those relationships, you know, look at asking for referrals, like asking people, Hey, do you know a good land use attorney in town? Someone who understands the rezoning process. And we'll dive into this later in the, the podcast that rezoning in our jurisdiction is going to be different than someone in Chicago. That's going to be different than someone in New York city and maybe even parts of, of the city depending on what jurisdiction controls, you know, how things get moved. So it's, it's all these different moving parts that you need to consider prior to doing so. And obviously on the build side, I've had several business owner clients of mine that I've worked with that are like, oh yeah, like, you know, we're, we're paying X, Y, Z amount of rent. It's, I think it's ridiculous. I want to be able to own what I, what I, what I, you know, what I pay money into. And then they run the numbers and they realize, oh wait, it's a lot more expensive to build than you would initially think. And then obviously the timelines get, pretty exacerbated, especially if you have to rezone the property and, you know, do all the different prep work for the site. You know, the topography is obviously important. Moving dirt around is expensive and yeah. can take time. And so, um, yeah. and all these things right now are kind of crazy. I mean, for the last year, it's been interest rates going up, construction costs going up. So you're really seeing, um, you're really seeing new construction. You know, it, it's, it's never going to get cheaper, but it, there's been a real acceleration of cost of new construction in the last uh, few months and year with interest rates and, and construction pricing. You know, some of the things have come down that were crazy during COVID, like timber, you know, lumber, and and but in general, it, the prices are are sky high. Someone told me recently that I was visiting a site with uh, some clients that are in the process of having a building constructed for them and the uh this contractor told me that a cubic yard of concrete 
and this is just materials, not not poured and finished, just the material itself it used to be 80 bucks a cubic yard. Now it's like 130 or 40 bucks a cubic yard. So you're talking like, you know, a 60 or 70 percent jump, you know, just over like a four year period. Um, so that's just one little example of many, many examples within a building that have made costs uh, get really, uh, really up there. Absolutely. And imagine what that does. If you're building an industrial building, you're pouring the foundation. I mean, that, that yeah, you're, building, you're building hundreds or even a million square feet these days in some buildings. Yeah. It really goes up. Yeah, of course. So on, on the development side, you know, which is something that I know you've done quite a bit of, you know, obviously through your experience in, all across the city and, and really surrounding counties as well. So, you know, on the development side, I, I guess are the there's the analysis a little bit different and then maybe if you can touch on maybe a recent deal you did to how you know you were able to kind of understand how to make it work um on that front yeah you know i'm not a developer you know i've learned enough just to be dangerous i guess what i i guess where i've kind of found a niche is knowing enough about development to help educate sellers on the the pain points and just the the, the things that are going to drive a deal to help sellers understand, um, you know, whether a, whether a developer is actually, you know, legit in what they're telling them about their site or not. So I think, you know, while I do a lot of different stuff in real estate, if I had one particular niche, it would probably be being pretty good as a go-between between I don't want to say like the uneducated seller, but just the layperson seller that's maybe not in the business day to day and the end user and the developers. So I'm, I've become pretty good at working with those sellers that just have this piece of dirt from, you know, they bought it 10 years ago, or it's been in the family for a hundred years or anywhere in between where, and they just know that they, the, the progress has come to them and now how do i make this how do i make this uh this site you know how do i get the most out of this site and an example of, of kind of what i'm talking about recently is we i have a 30 acre parcel and it's kind of in an industrial corridor where it's pretty quickly developing around it but it's not zoned it's only it's zoned ag but it's close to an interstate and it can it has some pretty good industrial potential but it has a lot of hair on it it's very much in the floodplain it is got a blue line stream that runs through it all these things really add up on cost for a developer and so we we recently put this property under a letter of intent at a price that was pretty far off from the original uh, listing price that i had it at we've we've brought that listing price down once with an adjustment and then even the contract price, you know, ended up going a decent amount lower. And it was just a slow process of, of educating, um, of educating a seller as to why the dynamics of both the macro market were pushing against them and the specific issues that they had, which were pushing against them. So there's always, it's always going to be both of those things factoring into, um, a deal, you know, interest rates, construction costs, just general big stuff that the developer can't really control. And then also the, the actual specific factors that they're that affecting that property. In this case, they were kind of fighting to, against two headwinds, you know, and it's got this you know, challenges with the site and challenges with the macro environment. And, you know, in this case, the sellers, they, they want to sell this site. They just don't really want to sit there and you know, there it's right next door to one and a half million square feet of uh, of other you know another industrial development that went up about a year ago, and these folks are just ready to kind of move on. Um, we're in the very early stages; it's just under letter of intent, so we're still haven't even been presented a purchase contract on that one. But it was it's an interesting example of a deal where you know, it was just a, a slow education process to help these sellers kind of get to that point of understanding that this you can sit and wait on that property for 20 you know for 10 years 20 years for things to change and, and but they wanted to sell and you know we had to kind of let them know this was going to be the price that they were going to have to take otherwise there wasn't a lot of other appetite in the market yeah for sure and i think like you said it's the education piece that that comes into play and and obviously thinking like a developer you had mentioned some of the things that developers look for as they're analyzing these sites for 
development. I mean, obviously developers have to make a profit, so they yeah. have to be able to justify whatever the land acquisition cost is going to be. And then as you factor in construction costs and as you factor in, you know, all these other very debt, debt, right, uh, debt costs over the course of, you know, holding the, the building without actually having rent coming in. And then ultimately what they can get in rents once the project is complete. And it's kind of just like a backwards back of the napkin type type analysis, trying to get a figure and say, okay, what can I pay per acre for yeah. the site? If in fact we wanted to move forward with yeah. it. So. Yeah. One of the hardest things with, with doing land sales is, is helping sellers understand that an acre, every acre is not created equal. You know, when they see the property down the street sold for a hundred thousand an acre and you're telling them, well, yours is worth 50 an acre, you know, it, it can be challenging to justify that sometimes. I mean, I, the justification sometimes is simple to me, you know, a lot of times it's like, well, this is why, you know, you have 50% floodplain, you have access issues, you have da, 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 but convincing a landowner that their price is not as, you know, when they just, they're seeing other people around themselves or, or other prices. So that, that's a big part of my job is just help, you know, analyzing, you know, why a site sold for a certain amount and, you know, was it, was it, pad ready was it were there sewers already there you know there's so many things that go into um the the, the value of a site um appraisers have hard jobs honestly because it's that they're working with appraisers are really good at digging up information but they never have the full story of a site um and you know i've seen you know i i always am very helpful to appraisers and, and they can be helpful to brokers as well um but sometimes i they, they they can they can have to work in a, in information vacuum sometimes when they're not factoring in uh, things that are really adding or taking away value from sites. So that's that's an interesting side you know side tangent of this whole conversation. But it made me think about how sometimes appraisers don't know the whole story. Yeah, well, it's hard, right? Because I mean, you know, obviously, I, I feel like it's a lot easier to to appraise a building. For example, yeah. that that you know you you know you have the square footage available, you have an idea of what the condition of the building is, and even if you don't have a lot of around to be able to reference, at least you can get an idea of what yeah. replacement cost is, whatever else. But with land, like you said, I mean, if there are, is hair on it, like the blue line streams, and you know topography's off, like how does that affect the value of one acre versus another? And yeah. one thing I'm kind of curious about is you had mentioned that not all acres are created equal. Obviously, you know I think that that is definitely true. Um, and you know, you've had situations in the past where you have like a six acre parcel of land and maybe you get approached by a, a, a buyer and says, Hey, we only want the hard corner. We want like, you know, two acres of that six acres, you know, what are some of the things to consider prior to just saying, Oh yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and do that. Well, I think if you're a seller in that position, you can, you have to be careful how to play it and you can actually help yourself by selling off the corner if it's the right if it's the right user and like for example i i have this i have a property in a market here in in kentucky it's just south of louisville uh, called mount washington and it's a very nice uh you know i'd call it a bedroom community of louisville um lots of new houses being constructed nice commercial center and i've got i've got this 10 acre site there and it was 10 acres and the, the owner wanted to sell that all as one piece. And, but he, he is a, I would say he's on the savvier in, in terms of sellers, you know, he's not someone that just sat on this land and wanted just to sell it and be done with it. He, he wanted to sell all 10, but was also experienced with some land development of his own. And so at some point he said, you know, rather than selling the 10, I think I'm going to develop a little, a little, you know, a little commercial subdivision here, a little, a little commercial development. And so the first parcel on the corner, um, we got under contract and sold and a Wendy's is there now. Well, that's a very nice, you know, recognizable national brand that really enhanced the whole, the whole development. So he wanted to sell this 10 acres for, I think, 1.7 million. So like 170 an acre. And now we're selling sites there for 
$500,000 an acre. And all be, you know, that, that takes patience on his part and it takes investment on his part to do utility work and bring roads into the site. But when it's all said and done, I mean, I think he's, he's already made well north of the one seven just on four transactions in the 10 acres. And I think we've got, you know, four or five acres left uh, there for him, you know, that, that I'm still selling. So once we sell that, he'll have probably tripled the one seven that he was originally looking to sell this when it was raw dirt. So that's just one, that's a good example of how, you know, being willing to subdivide a site can, can go, you know, can very much favor a seller if they have the experience and the patience. Some sellers want nothing to do with that. They're just like, I inherited this 10 acres from my dad or, you know, my parents, or I just, I bought this 20 years ago and I just wanted to wait and sit on it. And I'm not going to sell it till somebody comes along and makes me an offer for the whole thing. And neither of those approaches is wrong, but you know, it, you can enhance your value by, by uh, subdividing. For sure. And, and obviously, you know, like you said, not all acreage are created equal, you know, obviously Mount Washington has been booming over the last several years. So there's a lot of growth in that corridor that's very highly trafficked as far as retail is concerned. So, you know, it probably was a good candidate for something like that. And I'm, I'm sure yeah. you would agree that in certain situations, maybe it's not necessarily worth the, 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 the expenditure, but in the case of this parcel, of course it was. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. This one, this parcel was, was well positioned for that. Some, obviously there's plenty of pieces that just need to go all together because they, that's just the values all in the frontage or whatever. And maybe there's not a lot of frontage. This parcel has a lot of frontage. So we were able to, you know, sell like five or six frontage lots, whereas, you know, something that only has like a couple hundred feet of frontage and a lot of property towards the rear, you probably want to go ahead and try to sell that either all together or get a very strong premium for the front, knowing that you're going to have to take uh, you know, less on the back. For sure. No, that, that's a great point. So one of the big parts of development is obviously, you know, you can buy land that's already zoned. You know, that that's obviously a very, you know, a great uh, thing to do if you can do it. But there's a lot of sites, in particular, those that are in the path of progress that aren't zoned properly for their quote unquote new highest and best use. Because 20, 30 years ago, maybe that was, you know, fun like, like your example of agricultural land, for example. You know, maybe long time ago, that was, you know, the highest and best use, but now you're in the path of progress. You're starting to see a lot of commercial development along a certain corridor, and it makes sense to rezone that property to achieve its highest and best use. So from that standpoint, you know, I guess, what would you think would be a good, you know, rule of thumb as far as determining whether or not to pursue a rezone for a property? And then number two, you know, I guess, how to determine its highest and best use so that you can convey the proper message to the appropriate authorities. Yeah, well, every city has, or not every city, I guess, but but most cities and, and bigger, you know, big cities like Louisville and even, even mid-sized cities like the surrounding cities that are around Louisville. Uh, I mean, Louisville would be considered a, a mid-sized city by a lot of standards. So anything bigger than Louisville, of course, uh, you know, is going to have a master plan and then you know even cities of you know 50 000 are going to have master plans and that's a good place to look at first because if a property is shown in a master plan or a comprehensive plan is what a lot of times are called as being in an area that they that the city planners want to see as this ex, you know certain use but it's still zone. Let's say it's in an area that they're basically saying we we are we are open to this area being industrial. We're open to this area of being retail or mixed use with apartments and retails and higher density residential. But the property is still zoned single family, um, or or you know even less than that. You know zone ag. The the comp plan is a good place to start because you can get a feeling for all right, there's already some thought being put into this location of the city that says it's probably going to, you know, by, you know, in the future be best for, for this use. So that's a good place to start. I think 
building those relationships like we talked about in the beginning with land use attorneys to just have like land use attorneys and engineers and civil engineers that do a lot of rezoning work um, they can often give you their best sense of whether a site can be rezoned so th those are those are really really important relationships to develop just so you can pick up the phone and have a five-minute conversation with with somebody in that field to get an idea. Um, it's some, and then, then the other thing that you that you may want to do is just like a canvassing of of the neighbors around the property. Some cities like require a neighborhood meeting before you start the rezoning process, that so that you can in, you know you can take in feedback from neighbors and even places that don't require it. It's not a bad idea to do it. So. Like Louisville, you have to have a, a neighborhood meeting early, early in the process. So you file what's called a pre-application with the city. And then before you file your formal application with the city, you have to host a neighborhood meeting some, you know, in a community center, church or something nearby the site so that you have to inform a certain amount of neighbors. So that's coded into how the zoning process works in Louisville. Some places don't have that, but it's still not a bad idea to, to do one informally and invite the neighbors because if you can help build those relationships with the neighbors and understand what their pain points might be with you developing a site and take that feedback into consideration and help them become your advocate instead of your enemy at the, you know, the planning and zoning hearing or commission, um, that that's going to you know, help make the progress go a lot smoother. So those are the early, you know, the early things that you, that, that all, you know, that, that a good developer and a good land use attorney are going to, going to look at doing. And then obviously once it goes into the process of actual planning uh, or actual rezoning, you know, every city is going to be slightly different in terms of how you proceed from there. For sure. No, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, And you're right. I mean, I think that, you know, regardless of what city you're in, you're going to have to get buy-in from stakeholders, whether the stakeholders yeah. are, you know, the, the neighbors, which I, I would imagine in a lot of municipalities around the country, that is the case. And then also, you know, there may be governmental stakeholders and, you know, government, you know, officials are typically beholden to their constituents. So, yeah. you know, it would not be a bad idea to kind of gauge the pulse of, you know, what's, what the sentiment is of the neighbors before yeah. pursuing the process of, of yeah. getting uh, the rezoning done. So one thing I'm curious about is, you know, you know, we can speak primarily to Louisville, obviously, if you guys are located around the country, you know, there may be a different process, but from my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but I can't go down to the city and just say, Hey, I want to rezone this retail. You know, I, I have to have a reason for doing so. And I'd imagine in a lot of large municipalities, that may also be the case. Now, could you elaborate as, as to, you know, maybe that the reasoning for that and why you would, you could speculate as to why that would be the case. <laughs> yeah. So Louisville has what is called a plan certain zoning regime. Other places do not. And so what that means is when you file a zoning application in Louisville Metro, Louisville now is a merged city county government. So all of Jefferson County, any zoning goes through the same, the same body in the whole county. Um, you have to also submit a, a development plan for that site. So they are simultaneously approving a rezone and a development plan. So, and, and oftentimes that comes with a, a whole list of what, what is called binding elements, which restrict what can go on that site and restrict various things like lighting, noise, hours of operation, can carve out specific things. You know, you might want to put a certain restaurant and, you know, in a, in a, and have to get that properties up zone to, from residential to C1, you know, commercial, like one of the commercial zonings, but they might specifically carve out no such and such at this location or whatever. So in Louisville, it's very intensive with that. Like one County down from Louisville, one County South Bullitt County, where I do a lot of work, it's, it's not technically plan certain. Now, some cities within Bullitt County effectively make it to be plan certain because the city, you can go and get the planning and zoning commission to, to approve your zone change, but the city, if they don't approve your development plan, uh, then you can't develop. Like take that same place I mentioned earlier, Mount Washington. 
you can go and get a site zone in Mount Washington zone and change the zoning and ask them to change the zoning without even presenting a site plan. That's not always what's, you know, most experienced developers do that, but I've been in those zoning meetings in Bullitt County where I'm there with a retail developer who's presenting a plan for something very specific that they want to build, like a tractor supply or something. And then the next guy on the docket's just trying to get his house rezoned from like ag to industrial so that he can, you know, work on cars or something there. And and they'll, in some cases, they'll do that. And they'll, they'll rezone it. Um, but that usually works in a, you know, in an unincorporated part of the, of the, the county where they're just saying, okay, well, you need this particular use and you're really not even going to change. You're really not even going to develop anything there. You just want to do a new use at this site. So there's, there are some cases where you can actually just ask for a rezone with no development plan. It's just like, well, I want to do something different at this property than I've always done. It's always been zone residential. And now I want to, you know, now I want to uh, weld uh, fences. So I need to get a rezone and, and they'll do that in some, in, in some, in some places in Louisville, definitely not the case. And even in the incorporated cities of uh, Bullitt County, which it's not a merged County government. There's two big cities in the County, Shepherdsville and Mount Washington. You're effectively working in a, a, a system that you have to have a approved development plan um, to get the zoning change, but they're not necessarily tied together. For sure. Well, th those are some great insights. And, you know, again, like I said, this is some of this, we try to make it as as, as le less specific as possible because of the fact there's people tuning in from all over the country. But, you know, if you guys had any questions regarding the process here in Louisville, obviously we'd be happy to elaborate off the call, but one yeah. thing I'm, I'm an expert in Louisville or, you know, as much as yeah. I can be, I guess, but yeah, I, I've heard from other developers. We're on the tougher end of things, but I, I can't imagine it's that much different in, in our comparable cities like Indianapolis, Cincinnati, Nashville, places, you know, in, our, in the kind of the Midwest region around us probably even more difficult in places on the coast, you know, like San Francisco and, and other, uh, you know, other cities where you hear a lot about, you know, how there's major fights happening between developers and neighbors, you know, as they're trying to address affordable housing crises and stuff like that. So Louisville's probably somewhere in between, although I do hear from developers who come out of Columbus and Indy and these places that kind of are Midwest peer cities that are like, man, Louisville is a tough place to develop. So we probably have a little bit more of a elongated process, but it's probably mostly just a timing thing. I, you know, I, I would think the process is probably pretty similar, but it's just that maybe our city government <laughs> is understaffed or something. Yeah. I think, I think they, you know, one of the initiatives that the new mayor, at least what, what from what I hear, they're, they're trying to push for, you know, streamlining some of those processes. So I'm hopeful that in the f future we'll see, you know, some improvements in wait times. Cause you're right. That's, that's the biggest hurdle is it's not necessarily that, you know, the, the, the development's not happening. It's just, it's taking a lot longer than it probably should, but it, you know, it's part of the process. But uh, one thing I'm curious about is, you know, obviously, from a investment standpoint, because there's there's some people on the call that you know are aspiring, you know investment, uh, they're aspiring investors or maybe they're active developers and they're looking to acquire land to to add value to. So whether that's you know buying existing properties that are currently zoned properly or maybe taking a rezoning to to fruition and then from there developing uh, and providing a site plan and everything else. So one thing I'm kind of curious about is you know if you were to put on your investor hat or developer hat. And you were trying to find opportunities in the marketplace for, you know, value add opportunities or even even buying land and then selling it for a profit. Like what what type of things would you be on the lookout for uh, on that front? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think you always want to just look to see this is not some this is not a great revolutionary insight or anything but rooftops often you know rooftops are what's driving you know retail interest so if you can identify an area you know just slightly before the market the the, the commercial market catches on to it that you're seeing a lot of new housing starts i mean that's that's where you're gonna you know be able to get a commercial you know take commercial property and, and fill it with with tenants um like again i'll go back to mount washington um you know i've been selling a lot of land there but there's really not a lot of 
uh, vacant retail space in that market, even though there are a lot of a lot of homes have been built in the in the last few years. And I get calls from people looking for rental space quite often. You know, people that just want two thousand square feet, don't want to build a building, just want to lease something. And so my client that has been doing this land development, and selling sites down there, is actually going to move forward with a twelve thousand foot you know, neighborhood retail center. I think it's a great time for him to build right now. I mean, you know, even with, even in this, you know, rising interest rate, rising cost environment, I think he's going to, you know, he's going to do well with that, with that center. Um, yeah. You know, I think, there's, there's I think go go ahead. Ahead. no, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, I think the, 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 the main vein is that commercial follows residential. So as you start getting yeah. more people, more rooftops in an area, that's really where the path of progress lies. And, you know, the developers, you know, logic is, okay, let me get ahead of that progress to try to capitalize on, you know, whatever the trends are, because, you know, if there's rooftops there, then retailers want, may want to be located there, you know, on the industrial side of things, uh, you know, I, you could probably speak more to that, but it seems like if you're well-located as far as, you know, access to major roadways and, you know, rail, potentially rivers or other art arteries, then you may be in a better situation. And obviously reviewing the plans for the city. I mean, I'm sure that sometimes the city will tell you, Hey, we were looking to potentially have more, you know, X, Y, Z in this area. And that could be a good reference point um, to, to review. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at a comprehensive plan and, and see that a city's open to having, having new development um, come to that area, then that, if you know you might be in for a better situation from a zoning standpoint, I'm looking at this question here on the side. Oh, sure. Commercial yeah. follows housing. Sure. Housing follows jobs, employment. Yeah. Um, we we can we can uh, we'll address those questions here shortly. We have I was going to open it up to Q and A here shortly, so okay. we'll we'll yeah. go ahead and address those here shortly. So if you guys have questions, feel free to type away in the chat box, and we'll get to them. You know, as soon as we finish here. But one last point before we kind of move on and move on to questions was. You know, as far as the value of land is concerned, is I guess what are the tiers of, of value? Like, what's the highest value of land? Typically, obviously, you can't say for certain, but you know, what is, on it, if you were to say, you know, multifamily retail, industrial, office, you know, ag, that type of stuff. Yeah. Like, what would you say would be the hierarchy as far as you know what value? Like, what's the highest value versus what's typically the the lower value land? Yeah, generally speaking, retail far and away first you know a retailer can pay way more per one acre on a really high traffic stretch than anybody else is going to pay for that you know but of course the principal regression they're usually looking for smaller sites so the one acre retail site on a major thoroughfare is going to be always the most expensive site on a per square foot or per acre basis um you know, office is kind of hard to pinpoint these days because not many people are developing new office. I would say in the Louisville market, and I don't know if this is similar in other markets, but I'm seeing the industrial and the multifamily developers like almost probably multifamily can pay a little more than industrial still, but they're almost aligning in what they're willing to pay for sites. Um you know, in the Louisville market, that can be 200,000 per acre and up, like in the like central infill market. And then in the outer line, you know, counties around the, the city, you know, it'll go, that'll range anywhere from 30,000 an acre to, to 100,000 an acre, just depending on how good the site is, how developable the site is. And I recently saw an industrial sale of a big industrial sale in this market, you know, for Louisville, it was it just raw land for um, like a trucking terminal, I believe sold for 140 something acres for 14 million. So, you know, yeah. hundred over a hundred an acre, I think was the final sale price of that. And you know, that's, that's kind of in the same ballpark as what a multifamily developer could pay of course multifamily developers don't need they're we're talking about different scales of land you know so a multifamily developer typically only needs 10 to 20 acres whereas some of these industrial developers are looking to take down 50 to 150 yeah for sure and then another phenomenon which i know we talked about in the office the other day was the build to rent boom that's occurring 
Yeah. Um, and those developers are coming in paying pretty, pretty strong pricing too. I mean, maybe not as much as multifamily developers, but they're still pretty competitive. Yeah, they can pay, they can pay pretty, pretty close to what a multifamily developer can pay. And multifamily developers are not concerned with price per acre. They're concerned with price per door. Mm -hmm. And they got to factor in everything that goes into that price per door, you know, land cost, tap fees for sewer and water that can vary by municipality. Um, And just they're, price per unit is driving everything and it's the same for uh in, you know single family housing I've, I've sold several you know big properties to single family housing developers and it's all about yield you know all about house you know yield number of units they can get on it you know it doesn't matter if it's a 30 acre site or a 50 acre site if they can if it has if it's a 50 acre site with a bunch of like a lot of preservation requirements and a lot of land has to be set aside you know, they can only pay the same amount that you know and they they can they can pay what they can pay they're going to put it in their in their calculator for if it if it yields them 100 units on a 100 houses on 30 acres 100 houses on 50 acres they're going to be able to pay the exact you know roughly the same amount you know with some variation depending on location in town and what type of product they can build there of course you know they can pay more for the same number of units if they're selling those units in a part of the city in which they feel like they can justify a more upscale product and sell it at a higher price. So that's the other factor that goes into that is you know what they're selling the units for. But I would say they're generally on the lower the low end of the of the scale in terms of what they can pay per acre. They're you know they're they're going to go somewhere and, and put a housing development. You know they're not looking for frontage land the home builders are just looking for, for good, you know, large 10 plus acre tracks that, you know, they can fit as many homes on as they can for the most part. Definitely. Uh, some great advice. So, so, all right. So what we'll go ahead and do is if you guys have any questions for Nick, uh, we'll go ahead and type them away in the chat box. We're also live on LinkedIn. So for those of you guys are watching, uh, please just type away and we will get those questions answered. So we had a few questions come in. Uh, so Adam, they, they, he, well, he says it can take seven to 10 years to get a zoning various in, in Los Angeles. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Um, point of comparison, you know, we, makes me feel uh, like Louisville's not as slow as I, uh, <laughs> like to complain about. So yeah, that's a, that's a long wait. You got yeah. a lot of patience as a developer in, in one of those markets. I can only imagine patience and, and a lot of capital. Absolutely. And, that, and 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 one of the things about it too is that because it's probably so cumbersome to do a zone change. I mean, if your property's already zoned properly for whatever the use is, then it's probably worth a lot more because oh, now yeah. you, you don't exactly. have to. Yeah. So that's another function of like if if it's easy to rezone and it's easy to kind of just you know put up a building, then you know existing product is going to be it's not necessarily going to be sold at a premium. Whereas if you're the only show in town and it's really hard to get something built then you know you have a much more you know no doubt that barrier to entry is is huge you know it, it drives price drives the prices up significantly yeah, for sure so jesse um he he states uh if commercial follows housing housing follows jobs employment that's a great question so uh, you know i guess what more so what he's asking is you know what what does housing like what is an indicator of housing development in an area mm -hmm. yeah i think you're spot on it does it follows jobs and employment i mean that i recently became a ccim which is this designation that you know com that commercial brokers get i think Rafael's working on his as a certified commercial investment member and it, it's just it's an organization it's a good organization that that a lot of commercial brokers become members of and you go through this process of taking classes and taking a test to, to get the designation. But one of the things that I remember studying during one of the classes is about base employment and, and base employment means a job that is basically creating other jobs because it's there. It's, it's a job that is what the product that that job is making is being sold, not just in that community, but around it it's it's a job that's essentially the product is getting exported and the money is coming in from other places so in louisville our base employment drivers are 
UPS world port, you know, they're shipping product all over, they're shipping things all over the world for customers. And so everybody that works at UPS is a base employee, Ford Motor Company. We have two big plants here in Louisville. All those employees are base employees. So and what happens with a base employee is there's a multiplier effect. So a base employee for a, fa- a car factory, when they're selling cars all around the world, one base employee, there's, you know, there's calculators that, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics and, and these federal agencies quantify how many, you know, basically ancillary jobs get created from a single base, uh, base job. And, you know, in New York, it's the financial industry in Kentucky. It's a lot, it's a lot of auto jobs and, you know, other places, you know, I'd say, you know, in Texas, it's, it's oil. So it's, these are the jobs that are, you know, in Florida and Orlando, it's tourism. These are jobs that are creating, you know, exporting dollars and creating ancillary jobs like, insurance sales, roofers, plumbers, uh, you know, IT professionals that are servicing these industries. So that's the multiplier effect. And that definitely is where, you know, housing typically follows base jobs. Um, That's just kind of a a simple rule of thumb. If you're creating a lot of, if a city's creating a lot of basic jobs, then housing follows. I mean, Nashville's a great example. I mean, Nashville's become this huge hub of you know, it's a it's a country music hub, but it's also a, a southern financial hub now, and it's a tourism hub, and it's the, tons of money is coming into Nashville from outside of Nashville because of the you know because of, of of how it's growing. So, what's happening there? Tons of new apartments, and tons of new houses, and tons of new condo buildings are, are getting built. So, that's you know that's those are that's the general driver. So, you know, base jobs lead to more people lead to more housing, lead to more, and you know, that that then creates uh, retail. You know that's when retailers follow. So they're they're usually kind of last in the cycle. Is they see the the rooftops come, and then they you know then you get a new shopping center. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you, you know, as far as you know, ways to kind of indicate where to locate. You know, obviously job reports. You know, you look at your little your local business first, or some other other publications, and if there's a big announcement that says, Hey, this particular, you know, you know, let's say we have, we had recently had a, a Ford announced they were building this massive battery plant, you know, just 30 or 40 minutes South of us in Glendale, Kentucky. And that's going to bring over the course of a five-year period, 5,000 jobs to the area. So you can imagine that surrounding that facility, you're going to need, you know, a bunch of services, you know, you're going to need you know, uh, people who, you know, uh, different, different types of things. You're going to need retail. You're going to need, you know, a bunch of restaurants, you're going to need housing. So there's, there's ways you can calculate to say, okay, if they're bringing this many jobs to the area, what type of, you know, influx of population is going to come in. And that's where the, you know, EBM comes into play. And then you go revert back and say, okay, well, based on this, this amount of people that are moving to the area, how many people are within a household? Then you multiply that by, you know, the total number of jobs created, and then you can determine, okay, if there's going to be 50,000 people, as an example, I'm just throwing out a number, then, you know, what's the current inventory? So if there's only 35,000 houses in the area, it's like, well, there's a shortfall of 15,000. So if I can bring my product to market within a year or two, then I'm probably going to be in in good shape as far as a developer's concerned. So it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, these plants that are kind of just getting dropped out of the sky, Chris just mentioned another battery plant. Mm -hmm. Um, they're they're putting these big gigafactories all over the place as the federal government's incentivized, you know, building, uh, building, the, the bringing onshoring the battery supply chain to the U.S. So Kentucky's been a beneficiary of that. You know, Texas, Nevada, California, Indiana, Tennessee, Georgia, South Carolina. I mean, there 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 tons of these companies are announcing gigafactories with incredible. You know, they're talking about incredible numbers. Whether they all happen, whether there's enough lithium to supply all these places enough nickel or iron or whatever it is that they're building their batteries out of, you know, to be determined. But right now it's kind of a free for all as, as different investment groups are, you know, starting up you know, in many cases, sometimes it's, it's traditional players like Ford and now Tesla is almost a traditional player in this industry too, compared to the brand new uh, scene that's come, that's emerged in the last year or two. And uh, it will be interesting to see these places that are announcing these billion, $2 billion investments, just dropping these gigafactories all over you know, will, you know, will they actually meet these jobs? Will they actually build? Will they actually, you know, 
go to that scale that they're talking about and will they actually create the jobs they're talking about? And if they do, I mean, you should be able to see in real time this base uh, base job effect take place and watch communities around these gigafactories grow with that same pattern. Industrial-based job, followed by housing, followed by retail, you know, so it'll be interesting to see that play out and all kinds, you know, it's, it's happening all over the place uh, across the U.S. as the federal government's trying to uh, incentivize this stuff through, you know, DOE loans and infrastructure or uh, inflation reduction act has some big tax breaks for these things in it so yeah and, and then and then the geopolitical and the geopolitical implications of you know uh you know you know obviously disease you know covid shut down supply lines across the world you have the geopolitical impact of you know war potentially so a lot of these companies are starting to reconsider how they're approaching their their supply chain and you know reshoring is occurring at a much more rapid rate. So you're probably going to see a lot more companies determine, okay, well, maybe it's better for me to, instead of expanding or creating a, a new facility in, in Vietnam or some of these other countries, maybe now we can reconsider it and we decide to do it in, you know, our backyard. Yeah. For a variety yeah. of benefits. So um, one thing I'm kind of curious about, uh, oh, actually we're, we're going to go next up. Um, so Chris, Hey, Chris, they ask, um, what are the benefits of being a part of CCIM? Yeah, so I mentioned CCIM Raphael is he's getting ready to sit for his uh, his final exam here soon, so he'll he'll be becoming a CCIM as well. Um, I would say the benefits, and I don't know if this is universal across the the U.S., but in our market, it is certainly something that I would say many of the top brokers do pursue. So I think it's just kind of a it helps set a broker uh, apart in terms of just showing like. I've taken that next step to get educated in the world of commercial real estate because anyone can, you know, it's relatively easy to get a real estate license, right? You know, there's tons of real, there's tons of licensed real estate agents. The vast majority um, sell residential and many of them are incredible. And a lot of people don't know what they're doing and say, you know, commercial um, there's, there's a few designations that people get in the commercial world just to, to say and, and kind of show to the other, the brokerage world and to the developer world and to the end user world who knows what this is. It's just a way to kind of set yourself apart. You know, the education is, you know, one, I mean, it, it's actually just useful education. So you can apply it in your day-to-day, -day, you know, business uh, practice. And then the designation itself has some benefits of just, Kind of helping if someone's you know browsing through your website or looking through a list of brokers in the market and they see you're a CCIM, they might be just slightly more willing to to pick up the phone and give you a call to help them with a project. And you know, you're all, everybody's looking for you know, any kind of edge in this in this business. Yeah, for sure. And all the discussion we just had about economic based multiplier and you know the impact of development and absorption in an area that's all the stuff we learned through yeah. CCIM. That's, that's like, basically like CCIM, like one hundred two yeah. or one hundred two. Yeah, yeah, one hundred two. It's the market analysis, and then there's investment analysis and decision user analysis and all that stuff. So it's definitely practical insight information, um, and it, it, it's it's a pain to get. I mean, it's definitely not something you can just get overnight. You have to take courses. You have to have certain production you have to hit and it's an investment so i think if anything yeah. it just shows commitment to to right. what you're doing right so andrea i hope i, I said that right uh she asks um can you briefly go through how corporations decide when and where they will build um what job titles what what are the job titles of those decision makers good question yeah um you know job title is going to be uh course you know the c-suite is going to be important in that like for you know i guess this question we answer a couple different ways one like the like office or the people that create i guess like the base jobs or the 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 salary jobs or the the blue collar jobs you know they're looking at you know the company's need to expand and and to satisfy the workforce or you know they need it they're talking that when they're making a decision on when and where to build, you know, that's like, well, we need to put a battery factory somewhere, you know, that is a, 
that's a decision they're going to scour the whole the whole U.S. And then on kind of the other end of the of the, of the spectrum, you can you know. I'm thinking about like, you know, a Jimmy John's or a McDonald's or something, you know, when they're, they're going to be kind of following those housing starts and stuff. So um, like if someone from, you know, let's say uh, Toyota decides to build a new engine plant somewhere, you know, they're probably going to, you know, they're going to scour the country for sites. They're going to, they're going to look at available workforce. That's going to be one of their first key criteria is, you know, where's the workforce that we, you know, that's going to support the plant. That's probably going to be the number one most important decision is workforce. Uh, like when I was working at the state of Kentucky, you know, the workforce, the, you know, we thought that we were, you know, incentives were important, but like incentives are nothing without workforce to support plants, you know, whether that's an office, or, you know, or, you know, an office or a factory. Um, and then, then sites are critical. You know, it has to be a site that is fits the, the needs of the company. You know, if it's going to be an office, it's got to be in a place that has, you know, in a city, you know, a lot of times decision makers are making decisions based on airports, you know, how accessible is a certain city compared to other cities, you know, with direct flights and things like that. Um, this is kind of thinking of, this is kind of in the economic development site selection world going to be very different for uh, tractor supply or Publix or Kroger when they're trying to decide where to put their next store. They're not so much worried about whether the city has direct flights. They're going to be just focused on rooftops, essentially, com competition. They're going to be looking at what their competitors are doing in terms of volume of, of uh, business and making, you know, seeing like, like right now, Publix is uh, the big uh, grocery store chain is, is coming to Kentucky. They had, you know, they had not been in this market. They're a you know, Southern company with you know, tons of stores throughout, throughout the South, you know, Georgia, Florida, all the whole, you know, South Carolina, the whole South, and, and they're making a plane in Kentucky. And I can't, I mean, I can imagine one thing that drove them here is they're probably doing industry analysis and seeing that Kroger was making really good profits in this market, which is one of the, you know, really had a Kroger it's, dominates the, the, the grocery market in Kentucky. So Publix probably saw that and said, Hey, there's, there's, uh, there's dollars to be had in that market. You know, Kroger has, a, is, is, is making, you know, huge profits here. So, um, you know, the decisions are going to be different, you know, as far as who that is and directors of operations, a lot of companies do have real estate directors, a company that really has to do a lot of expansion, like a chain type restaurant, they're going to have real estate managers. When I need to find a contact for, uh, when I'm trying to get in touch with like a real estate um, manager for a a retail business, you know, whether that's, you know, just a restaurant or whatever, a tractor supply, a Sherman-Williams, place like that, I often reach to a resource that we're involved with. It's called, you know, International Council on Shopping Centers, ICSC. They have a really nice database of all, you know, that's a that's kind of like a CCIM type organization, only specifically focused on retail and not just brokers, but like end users and developers are really heavily involved in ICSC. So you go to this, you know, you become a member, you go to the ICSC website, you can oftentimes find real estate managers, directors of development. These are the different titles that these people will have at the retail um, businesses that um, are expanding so if you know if a company has thousands of locations they're definitely going to have a whole real estate team supporting that you know um, and yeah the title would probably be director of real estate real estate manager real estate analyst um, whoever you can get a hold of and they'll tell you whether it's their area of uh or they you know can kick you to another somebody in the company that's better handled you know better suited to handle your your inquiry Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I'll, and I'll say from direct experience, I got several franchise clients and we're, I'm interacting directly with the, the real estate director as well, because they're the ones who ultimately have to provide approval for sites as well. They'll have a say sometimes into saying, okay, well, we don't like this site because of X, Y, Z, this doesn't fit with our criteria. So you guys need to move on to another site. And, you know, obviously it's a back and forth with the franchisee and the, and the, the end, the, the real estate uh, department to make sure that we come to an agreement on what a appropriate site is, and then we can move forward and kind of make it happen. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Is, you've uh, got some clients in that world that you're dealing with, you know, gas station yeah. developers and, mm -hmm. and retail developers and retail end users. And so you, you, you're connected with some of those 
decision makers, those, those yeah. directors of real estate, those directors of development. That's generally what the those people, generally the title of those types of folks within a big or corporation. corporation. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, we're running right on time. Um, ICSC, Chris, it's ICSC. It's International Council of Shopping Centers. So we're running a little low on time. I just want to make sure we we wrap it up within the hour. But uh, Nick, greatly appreciate your time. Obviously, you're uh, a wealth of knowledge. And, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who are interested in reaching out and kind of, you know, getting a feel for Louisville as a market and potentially even acquiring property in the market or selling property in the market. What's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, go to our website. It's that's the best place to just the simplest uh com, and you'll find my email, phone number, you'll find Raphael's email and phone number on there. So that's probably the quickest and easiest way to to get us just grizantigroup.com. For sure. Yeah, and I'll include that in the show notes as well. So if you guys are watching this on YouTube, it'll be in the description and as well. If you guys are listening to this in a podcast format, check out the description and we'll be able to get you in touch with whoever you need to. So All right. Well, thanks again so much for stopping by, guys. Like I said at the beginning, we do this every other week. We have people who come in and talk about a variety of different commercial real estate topics. So we would encourage you guys to keep coming back and engaging with the group. And we look forward to seeing you guys next time. Thanks, Rafael. Have a good one. Yeah, good seeing you guys. Ciao.